Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, hi, this is Dan Miller. Yes, we're going to spend the next 48 minutes talking about your questions, questions you submit during the course of the week. I have the opportunity to scan through those, pull out some that are extremely interesting, questions that are more intriguing than what I could possibly think of. I thank you for that steady stream of questions. Incidentally, you can shoot those in to either askdan at 48days.com or just go to the podcast link at 48days.com. There's a little form there. You can fill that out to get you started. Well, here's some of the things we're going to be covering today. Dan, can I make money as a dealer of unique or vintage cars and trucks? Someone says, I, my work has sucked all the creative juices out of me. Now I can't think of anything I wouldn't love to do. Another question, if CEOs are being fired, how can any of us have job security? How do I establish myself as a paid speaker? Do you have any pointers regarding negotiating salary for jobs with nonprofit organizations? And how about this one? I hope we get to this one. Someone asked, when is it okay to be a pastor? <laughs> now, I, I guess that's prompted by the fact that I share frequently on here that I have worked with lots of pastors over the years and helping them move on to other things. Now, I don't go around the country telling people they shouldn't be a pastor, trust me. Uh, but there are a lot of pastors who are leaving either by choice or being forced out. And yes, I think there are things those people can move on to. But I certainly don't want to give the impression that I don't think it's ever okay for somebody to choose that as a vocation. Certainly honorable and right in certain situations. We'll talk about that. Got some events coming up here. The next event coming up. Wow, I haven't looked at this schedule. You know, I think the next one is um, right to the bank. And I think we're just about sold out on that, incidentally. Registrations, we've got to cap them at 50. We love having things here at the sanctuary. A lot of times my uh, team says, why don't we just get a bigger venue, a place where we can handle 200 people? But it changes the dynamics of our live events. Those of you who have been here know that it's uh, a unique ambiance to come here to the sanctuary, our converted barn just outside of Franklin, Tennessee. Uh, we're way back off the road. We have the trees and you will see deer running around and we walk the nature trails and there's water fountains and just things that I think add to our receptivity for creativity. I think it works differently than if we meet at a hotel conference room somewhere, you know, just this week, there was a bunch of us on the no more Mondays cruise had a marvelous time. And it's funny how sometimes, uh, Plan B is better than plan A. We were scheduled because we had a group to meet in one of the conference rooms. And so we met there the very first night and it was just a conference room. There were no windows. It was interior on the ship. It was just brown walls and just functional tables, you know, with a projector and a screen. That's it. Well, because of the size of one of the other groups and because they were being very belligerent and demanding, our onboard ship coordinator asked if I would possibly consider moving our group to a different place. I said, sure. We've been on lots of cruises, so I'm familiar with the kind of places they have. I said, sure, no problem. You know, what are our options? Well, 
she took me down and showed me the Asian restaurant. Now, this is a really upscale restaurant on board the ship. It was beautiful in terms of decor. It opened right open, right out under the ocean. The view was spectacular. I mean, we were sitting in $1,000 chairs, probably. I mean, everything was first class. That was a much better option than what we had been assigned to originally. And the funny thing is, you know, we got that because we were pretty uh, congenial and easy to work with. Our coordinator on ship was amazed at how easy we were to work with. And, and as a result, they also provided refreshments for us. And then a cocktail hour the last night we were there, did some amazing things for us. But, you know, the setting for how you learn does make a difference. Thus, my original point, we like to have things here at the sanctuary. So even if we have to cap the groups, smaller groups, uh, we like to have them here. So, yeah, we need to cap our groups here, our live events at about 50 people. We like to keep the coaching events even smaller than that. 35 is really our max there. But So they're small groups, but if you want to get in, we'd be delighted to talk to you. And again, you can check with Ashley about registrations. If you didn't make it into the one coming up in April, we've got two more this year for the Right to the Bank, those being in August and October. Now, here's our quotation for today, which also kind of segues from what I just told you about. This is comes from Andrew T. Summers, who says, treat every person with kindness and respect, even those who are rude to you. Remember that you show compassion to others, not because of who they are, but because of who you are. I need to be reminded of that now and then, but I know that really needs to be true on the way home from our cruise, Joanna and I were traveling. We drove because we spent some time before and after the cruise in Florida as well. But on the way home, stopped at a restaurant and the service was just horrendous. Really exemplified by the fact that we had just been on a cruise where the service is, is so stunning that it's amazing. It's not like anything you, you experience in the United States anywhere. But anyway, we stopped at a well-known restaurant and the service was just atrocious. The waitstaff was hollering at each other. And it was clear we were in imposition. They were, you know, much happier if we would not have interrupted their day. That kind of service. Well, when you leave a tip, leaving a tip is supposed to be connected to the service that you received. Now, really, it kind of works in reverse in our culture. Tip actually means, I mean, it's an acronym, T-I-P. It means to ensure promptness. So if it's to ensure promptness, then it really should come at the beginning, not the end. But we don't normally do it that way. Certainly you can, you know, slip the maitre d' a 20 if you need to uh, get a preferred seating in a restaurant. That's not uncommon or illegal or anything. It just happens. But typically in our culture, you tip after the meal based on the level of service that you received. So if you received lousy service, then the tip could theoretically be nothing. But that doesn't sit well with Joanne, my wife who in this case, I was tempted to leave something very, very slim as a tip. And she says, no, our waitress needs it. You know, it's obvious our waitress is struggling in many areas of her life. She needs it. And we left her a substantial tip. I guess that's an example of treating with kindness. You know, somebody who certainly didn't treat us that way. But I believe in the law of the harvest. Those things do come back. You know, I just saw clips of an interview with little Jimmy Dickens on his 90th birthday 
recently. Now, little Jimmy Dickens is a grand old Opry member, has been putting out country and bluegrass music for a lot of years. He's been a member of the Grand Ole Opry for 60 years. But they ask him at his 90th birthday, what do you want your legacy to be? Now, he's he's got a whole lot of things that are unique about him. I mean, he is four feet 11 inches tall. So he could say, I want to be remembered as being the shortest member of the Opry you know, ever had or the longest living member of the Opry, which he currently is, or he could have said, I want to be remembered as the guy who, you know, brought to you such famous classics as May the Bird of Paradise Fly Up Your Nose, or I Got a Hole in My Pocket, or When the Ship Hit the Sand. Got to be careful saying that one, or Take an Old Cold Tater and Wait. I mean, he, he did kind of novelty songs. So there are a lot of things that he's remembered for, and he's certainly you know, a good old guy here in the Nashville area. But this is what he said. What do you want your legacy to be? Little Jimmy Dickens on his 90th birthday. He said, I want to be remembered as someone who is honest and kind. I thought, how cool is that? You know, sometimes when we get to a point in life and we're doing some um, looking back, evaluating what we really are going to be remembered for, you know, people may not long remember you know, what your financial portfolio was or how many books you wrote or how many times you spoke or what political office you held. I mean, those seem to be pretty fleeting. Boy, I want to be remembered like little Jimmy Dickens as someone who is honest and kind. Well, hey, we'll move on. I got a lot of questions today that I want to cover. Rashonda says, I'm a foodie. I love baking, cooking, creating recipes, and so on. How can I create passive income with this passion? I'm pregnant with my first child. I'm looking for ways to bring in an income without trading hours for wages. I'd like to sell, create and sell e-books, e-cookbooks. Are any of the suggestions as how I can put legs in this passion? Thank you. Well, with cookbooks on the internet, that is a very tough market. Now, we hear stories about, you know, somebody put a recipe for chocolate chip cookies up there and charged $3.95 and made $100,000, but that's really pretty old history. I don't hear of many people doing that anymore. Now, my wife is a wonderful cook, and she does lots of cooking, and so she'll remember that we had a shrimp boil while we were down on Hilton Head or something like that. And so she'll want to know, what do you put in a shrimp boil? She doesn't go online and buy a cookbook. She doesn't pull one of the many cookbooks off the shelf in her kitchen. Almost without exception, she pops open. We have a little laptop notebook in the kitchen. She pops that open and just pulls up through a Google search. You know, she'll get six different recipes and she'll choose the one that she wants and use that. The information is so readily available and so much is free that I think you're going to have a difficult time just selling e-cookbooks unless you create a name for yourself first. So if you create a brand for yourself, then certainly you can do that. So if you want to be the next Paula Dean or Rachel Ray or whoever else is out there, you know, you, you can do that, but then you've got some things to do in advance of then being able to sell cookbooks based on having a recognizable name. 
But I would encourage you to look at, you know, doing seminars and workshops around your cooking. Go to 48days.net. Now, you'll hear me mention that. It's a community. of We're rapidly approaching 10,000 members there now. There's no cost to be a member, but it's a place where people share ideas exactly like what you're presenting here. And there's a couple on there. They're very active there. Celeste and Phil Davis. They are... They're they're doing cooking classes. I get their updates. They're doing a cooking class tomorrow night. Um, but they do cooking classes and personal wellness coaching that then drive the sales of their cookbooks. So you've got to create multiple things that then where each activity in each area drives activity in the others. Now, I use a Venn diagram. It's three circles where they overlap to some degree. So if you have two at the top, they overlap, then you draw the third one and it comes up and connects both of those. You're going to have one area where all three circles overlap. That can be the core of your business and that could be writing cookbooks. But what are then in that case, the six other things, the six other areas that are going to drive sales of your cookbook? That's the way that you need to look at this. So if you're going to speak, write, teach, coach, Uh, You could sell related products. You could sell cookbooks that are not just ones that you've written, but ones that are recognizable names, The Joy of Cooking and things that Paula Day and Rachel Ray have done, perhaps. But you become a source of great information. And by that, you build your own brand and identity. And then, yes, you can sell your products. But just going on there and having great recipes and trying to generate money with those is going to be extremely tough for you. Well, Steve says, I want to be a dealer of unique and or vintage cars and trucks. I realize that may be a difficult market to break into. And I think I'll have to start with normal cars and trucks off Craigslist that I can flip for a profit. Would you give me ideas for marketing and USP? Thanks. Love the podcast, Steve. Well, thanks for your notes, Steve. I would encourage you don't start with normal cars. Just start with unique cars. Now, Anybody can go on Craigslist, and I certainly have done that a lot. You know, go on Craigslist, you find stuff, boom, you buy it. But if you're looking for a Buick Regal, you can sort through 100 Buick Regals and see exactly what they're going for. Um, If you're uh, looking for a Jag XJ8, you can look at all of those. So you're going to be able to price shop those. It's going to be hard to have any kind of extraordinary margin on those, whether you're buying or selling. It's pretty standard. But as soon as you have something that's unique, you know, if you've got a 57 Chevy, you aren't going to have a whole lot of other cars to compare to. Or if you've got a 53 Ford pickup truck, I used to sell some of those when we were in California years ago. And, you know, you have something like that. You put yourself in a really unique market. Now, I love the car business, as you know, if you have listened to me for any period of time at all. But I would never, ever, ever in a million years be in the new car business. I mean, if you're going to buy a Nissan Tundra, I mean, you can shop six dealers for exactly the same car, exactly the same features, exactly the same color. I mean, how are you going to make money when it's just that competitive? Somebody down the street will always cut the price another $200. As soon as you move into used cars, you move away from that generic one size fits all kind of space. And you can, in fact, make a lot of money selling used cars. When you start talking about unique or vintage cars, I mean, I love that. I've got a, right now, and I've got a, the only thing I've got right now is a 1978 
Cadillac Eldorado Barrettes. But it's a special color split. There were only 2,000 of them made, and the one I have has 57,000 miles on it. Well, I'm going to promote that car. As soon as the weather breaks, it gets a little warmer, I'm going to sell that car. That's a car. You will not be able to find another one just like that anywhere in the world. I mean, with only 57,000 miles, that particular color split, those features, I mean, it'll just be, it'll stand alone. I love having things like that, but I encourage you to go with that immediately. I mean, find things that are really unique. You can find them on people's front yards, sitting out in their, the field behind the barn. Uh, but, uh, you know, you can find those things. I mean, one of the things that I often watch when I'm on the treadmill in the morning is the channel called Speed. And they often have auto auctions on there. And when you get, you know, you're going to have a 1968 Mopar Charger. I mean, golly, those things sometimes bring a quarter of a million dollars, even if they sold brand new for 6000 because they are unique. And yeah, I would encourage you to go ahead and have fun with that and knock it out of the park. Dan, this comes, let's see, Dan, I feel like I've lost my creativity. This comes from Josh. My work has sucked all the juices out of me. Do you have any ideas how to get the creative juices flowing again? I can't even sit down and think of my hobbies. What if I can't think of anything I would love to do? Well, Josh, you need to break the log jam. You need to break whatever has numbed you to those things that were real prominent when you were six and seven years old. I mean, last night, spending time with my two little granddaughters here. Uh, there's no lack of creativity there in a term in the things that they think about. I mean, I've got a little tattoo of a puppy with pink wings on it on my hand right now. Thanks to my granddaughter, Clara, who is three. She had one on her hand and she wanted to put one on me. I'm got that. I'm, I'm sporting that proudly today. But the things that she comes up that are creative are non-ending. You had that at one point. You cannot be a three-year-old and not be creative. So something's happened along the way to numb you to that. And I grant you that, but I think it's still there. It just needs to be somehow we need to peel back the layers of the onion to expose the creativity that you once had. So first and foremost, believe that it is there. You're not just a robot going through life. It's there. And like you say, you need to just get the creative juices flowing again. And there are a lot of things you can do to do that. You said you, you can't even sit down and think of your hobbies. You need to sit longer. <laughs> you know, people like Henry Ford used to sit for ideas where he'd just go into a room, close the door, you know, turn off the lights and just sit waiting for ideas to come. And I, I don't know how anyone could possibly sit for any length of time and not have ideas come to them. Now, that's one way, you know, break your normal routine do something differently. Drive a different direction when you go home. Um, read books like How to Think Like Leonardo da Vinci. That's a wonderful book and it's full of ideas to tap into your own creativity. I've got a little book that we're going to be republishing this year. I bought the publishing rights to it last year. We're going to update it and it's the little book of big ideas, but it's full of things to help you with your creativity and I'd be delighted to get a copy in your hands as soon as we bring those off the publishing rolls. Uh, take a long walk, exercise more. I mean, I keep a, a pad. Joanne uh, joked just the other day, I have uh, a pad on the treadmill where I work out and uh, it's titled grocery list just because it was a convenient pad, but it gives me about a five by seven 
pad and she says, Gee, you're making up a grocery list. And I said, no, but that's where I have, you know, so many ideas this morning when I got off, I had about, well, I had about 25 different things that I had jotted down during the hour that I was on a treadmill, but there's something that's extremely cleansing and cathartic about being in a full sweat. It kind of reduces your focus on things that it may even seem to be urgent. And I think taps into a part of your brain where you're not as much in control because you're struggling just to keep breathing. And I think it releases some creativity. So, you know, try things like that. Get in a local brainstorming group, take an art class. You'll tap into parts of your brain that you didn't know were there. Put yourself around people who are high performers. And you can do those things, and it's going to start those creative juices again. Great question. Thanks. Dr. Pack says, Dan, I'm a physician about to start a new business that is publishing my life's work on arthritis. I've gotten offers from credible publishing companies, but have chosen to self-publish. Seems like Lulu is the best company to go with, but choosing one is an overwhelming and confusing task. Your advice would be most appreciated. Well, what you're talking about, and I assume you have good reasons for publishing on your own rather than going with an established publisher, and that's fine. I look at every project that we do in multiple ways, and certainly a lot of times we choose the same option that you're describing. Um, well, let me just give you some things to kind of mull through here. Who you choose to do the printing, what you're talking about at this point, we ought to remove the name publishing from it. You're just talking about choosing a printer is what you're talking about, really. Now, you can choose to go with with Lulu. There's a whole lot of places out there that are like that, that you can choose to go to. And you can then select from different packages that they have for an author like yourself. So if you need somebody to do a front cover design, they will do that. If you need somebody to do the layout on the inside so that it looks nicely and is prepared for the spine binding on one side so it's offset and doesn't look like it just pulled it off a Word you know, document and put it in and just you know, put put it together on one side. You don't want that. If you need somebody to get an ISBN for you, I mean, you can choose packages from whether it's Lulu, Westbow, Lightning Source, CreateSpace, or any of those, and then decide what a, what levels of help do you need to get this done. Who you choose really isn't that critical. However, there are a couple that I would encourage you to check out because of the credibility and reputation that they have. One of those is CreateSpace. Now that's through Amazon, but if you just do a quick search, you know, CreateSpace.com, I'm sure it'll take you right to that because that is Amazon's version of services for authors who are going to self-publish. But they make it pretty easy for you to get right into their system. And of course, Amazon is the biggest seller of books in the world, bar none. So you do want to be there. And that's an easy connection if you just use their service called CreateSpace. Joanna's just done her second children's book. We used Lightning Source. And as much as I talk positively about CreateSpace, we used Lightning Source. They're local. They're a division of Ingram books, which is the largest distributor of books in the world. And they're kind of right here in our backyard in Franklin, Tennessee, just across the field in Laverne. So we've used those and we're lo- we, we've been very happy with what they have done for us. Now, every publisher is also creating a division for self-publishing. So Thomas Nelson, the largest Christian publisher in the world, has a division called Westbow. 
um, B&H Publishing. Let's see, theirs is called, that's Broadman and Holdman Publishing, the big Baptist publishing uh, company here in Nashville. Their self-publishing division is called Crossbooks. Uh, there are things like Hay House out there that do certain kind of venues of, uh, or certain kind of uh, types of books that they produce. Now, most of the names that I just published actually go through Author Solutions. Author Solutions does the actual production for most of these other imprints that the big publishers have for self-publishing. So they're kind of a broker. Again, they'll package some services, but ultimately the work is usually done through Author Solutions. And you can go directly to them if you want to and check them out. Now, having said that, I don't want to just provide enough information to make it confusing for you, make you second guess the fact that you've talked to Lulu. Lulu is perfectly fine. I think I just got a book this week uh, from somebody where I wrote the forward to their book, and I think that she elected, may have been Zulon, but uh, it was either Zulon or Lulu, one of those rhymy kind of names. But Lulu is fine. If you've gotten prices from them that you're comfortable with. And and when it comes to prices, I mean, you're going to pay to get somebody to really set you up to produce your first book. You ought to be looking at somewhere between one and $4,000, depending on the level of service that you get. Um, When we go to Lightning Source, we go with files that are ready to print. So we don't have them do any kind of design. We don't have them do any kind of setup at all. All they do is just print it. But then we can order in small quantities. We can have it there. It's readily available through any sources where people would be searching for books. Um, well, I, I, I'm going to just uh, just stop there. That's probably more information than what you were asking for. Of course, these are all things that we cover in detail in our Right to the Bank live events that we've got. Three of those coming up yet this year. The first one in April coming up in a couple of months. Darius from Valdosta, Georgia. We just, um, golly, we spent the night in Valdosta just a couple nights ago. Says, I'm a 19-year-old college student who would like to earn at least $1,000 a month. I'm really interested in entrepreneurship. My major is marketing. I have $2,000 that I saved up that I could invest in any idea you give me. I would really appreciate your help. Okay, here's the deal, Darius. It's not me telling you what the greatest ideas are, the hottest, you know, trends out there. None of those things, any of that information is likely to be a Band-Aid solution or worse yet to misdirect you. Here's how you find something where you're going to make a lot of money. Follow your passions. Just develop something you're already interested in that you already know about. I mean, if that's baseball cards, make that what you do. I mean, if it's growing orchids, make that what you do. If it's selling cars, like an earlier listener here, vintage and unique cars, do that. I mean, I can make a whole lot more than $1,000 a month any day, you know, any month of any year, no matter what the economy is doing, by buying and selling cars. I understand cars. I love cars. It's easy for me to buy and sell those and make money. And that's what I've used as a backup many times when I've been back in graduate school or starting other businesses. I use that as the foundation for providing the income that our family needs for basic expenses. You need to have something where it's that natural, where you're already interested in it. So if it's mowing yards or washing windows, you know, we were, Joanne and I were sitting in a quaint little restaurant called Molly's 
in Macon, Georgia recently. Now I'll tell you the quick connection. Macon, Georgia is the home for a whole lot of musicians. And uh, we were kind of learning about the town a little bit. We just, this is how we travel. We don't go from point A to point B with no interruptions. We make the entire trip a journey, uh, a, an adventure from start to finish. So we were traveling from Fort Lauderdale back to Franklin, Tennessee, and we got off in Macon, Georgia. We spent about half a day there. But we found out that that is a home for a whole lot of musicians, including Little Richard. Now, one of Little Richard's most famous songs was Good Golly, Miss Molly. So this little restaurant, uh, the proprietor's name is actually Betty Mock. But she chose to name her restaurant Molly's based on the fame of Good Golly, Miss Molly. But while we were sitting there, had a delightful interaction with Betty, the owner. She gave us one of her cookbooks. I gave her a couple of my books. We just uh, became instant friends. Uh, connected easily with her while we were sitting there eating our Monte Cristo sandwiches at Molly's a guy came by and washed the windows at the front of her place front and side door took him less than 10 minutes I mean I, I pay attention to things like that less than 10 minutes boom he came in got paid now probably you know I should have asked her you know, <laughs> I should have asked him, her or him, but you know, I would expect that it's probably 15 or $20 to get the windows watched. Now, surely, you know, it, it would be worth that to have somebody come by like every other week and boom, keep the windows spotless on your little business. Let's just say that it was, let's just say that he got $20. So really what we're talking about is $2 a minute while he was doing that. So if we use that as a model, now I watched this guy, he left there and he went up and down the street in Macon, Georgia. And it appeared that about every other place he had a contract with or agreement with to do their windows. Now I, you start doing the math on that where you don't even get back in a car to move. You just walk a door down and start doing it again. And you can make effectively, you know, a couple bucks a minute to make a thousand dollars a month, you need to spend what? What? What's that going to be? That's going to be like, geez, what is that? I mean, are we talking? It's like eight minutes a week or something. You need to spend doing that. I mean, I think you can knock that out. Um. So start with what it is you enjoy. Start with what you're passionate about. That's where you find great ideas, and you can certainly make a thousand dollars. A month and more. And the interesting thing is, although you have $2,000 in seed capital, you may not need a penny of that. You may not need that at all. There's a whole lot of ideas that can make you $200,000 a year that don't require $2,000 in startup capital. But start with what you enjoy, build your idea around from that. Now, just a reminder again if you've got a question, if you're listening, you got a question, you can shoot a question to ask. Dan at 48days.com or just go to the podcast link 48days.com and it'll show you a little form there where you can just shoot your question in and be happy to review that and include it in upcoming shows. Katie says, Dan, thank you so much for your wonderful and inspirational, inspirational books and podcasts. I listen regularly, enjoy learning more about how I can improve not only my career, but my life. I'm an underemployed graphic designer working in Cleveland. I current, boy, there's two strikes against you, isn't it? Under, underemployed and living in Cleveland. All right. I currently work full time, but make peanuts and I'm not doing work that is creative or fulfilling. After reading your book, I realized I want to do video and design work for companies that work with humanitarian organizations. I love helping people and design. So it seems like a perfect fit. 
She started. She says she's already started expanding her business. Has a design business called HelloFizz.com. Uh, working with her boyfriend, who's often a designer. We've worked on a few projects, but nothing that produces significant income yet. Now, between working a full-time job, looking for a new job, and trying to get Fizz off the ground, I feel I've stretched far too thin. I'm not sure where to focus. I have $70,000 in school debt, feel overwhelmed to produce more income. We both love design, know that as where we belong. We just can't figure out what is the best path. Well, you've got to create this transition. You know, you ought to be able to create a 90 to 180 day transition in that period of time where you would have your design work replace and surpass your current income. If you can't see the design work being able to replace and surpass your current income within that 90 to 180 days, then you have to be realistic about what is that? You know, is it just a little sideline hobby? Is it a poor use of your time? You know, are you not doing the marketing things that you need to do? There's something wrong if you can't in fact do that. So if you really have the ability to do video and design work, you, know, you ought to be able to make a transition in that period of time so you don't continue to be stretched thin forever. Yes, it may create a transition where you're burning it at both ends, but it ought to be a transition where you can see light at the end of the tunnel. But you have to believe that even with student, student loan debt does not trap you in a traditional job. I mean, certainly not. If you have that much student loan debt, you better break out of a traditional job and figure out how to make a lot of money. I mean, with $70,000 in student loan debt, if you're making $35,000 now, you know, it's almost overwhelming to think how you could ever get that paid back. But if you break out of that and figure out a way to make $100,000 with your video and design work, which is certainly not unreasonable, if you create a clear plan and have your marketing plan in place, then all of a sudden, you can see light at the end of the tunnel. When I went through a business disaster a few years ago that I have talked about on my books, I was faced with about $430,000 in debt. Uh, now that was debt that I knew that I needed to repay. I'll just leave it simple at that. And with that, I knew that my options were pretty clear. I was very employable. I was teaching as an adjunct at the university, could have gotten a full-time job teaching there. And so let's say that I would make $60,000. Well, with three children, making $60,000 a year, $430,000 in debt to repay, that's not a very pretty picture. I mean, if I dedicated half of my income, lived on 30 and paid 30, we're looking at about 15 years to clear that out. That is not what I wanted to do. I knew that my best option was even though I had gotten burned big time in my entrepreneurial ventures, my doing my own thing, I knew that was the only option for me. Jump back in the game, get back in the game again. And that's exactly what I did. Uh, took initially a commission only sales position, but, uh, that allowed me to generate some significant income pretty quickly. And from there, just kept on going, never looked back. So don't be too concerned about keeping your safety net because you have a lot of obligations right now. If anything, that ought to prompt you even more because you have the big obligations to move very quickly into something that you can do on your own. Now with this, 
I know there may be a little fear and intimidation, but hey, I'll tell you what, at some point, you got to be willing, just like this beautiful, beautiful song is telling us. Well, you recognize the song, beautiful song, The Rose by Bette Midler, but it's the heart afraid of breaking that never takes a chance. You know, sometimes we try to keep ourselves too protected and we miss the big opportunities by trying to be safe. Create a clear plan, yes. Don't just jump off the end of the the dock, but create a clear plan. And when you can see it come to life on paper, you're ready to walk into it and make it a reality. Well, Jeff says, Dan, I enjoy listening to your podcast. You often talk about risk and job security. I find it fascinating that the CEO of NBC Universal ran his company to have the best year ever in almost every single division, and that same year was fired. How much more job security is there than to be the CEO of NBC to run the best year ever and to work there for 24 years? If this doesn't convince people to start their own businesses, I don't know what will. This time I don't even have my own business, but it's one of my goals for this year. Wow, even the CEO doesn't have job security because if the company's bought out, he's no longer the CEO. I'd love to hear your comments on this. Well, what Jeff is referring to there is um, actually referring to Jeff Zucker, who was CEO of NBC and had been there for a long, long time. And then that the company was bought out by Comcast. And yeah, they made it very clear from the outset that they would not have him stay in that position. Now, Jeff, like many CEOs, had kind of a checkered history. Yes, they have had a lot of successes, and he's certainly well-known in the industry, but he's also done some uh, things that were highly questionable, like pull Jay Leno and put Conan in, and then, you know, months later, pull Conan and put Jeff, or put uh, Jay Leno back in. Um, There are some things that a whole lot of people thought were not real wise there, but now, be be that as it may, it doesn't really matter, because it doesn't matter how long he's been there. When a company is purchased by another company, there are going to be changes. And even great performance, dependability, reliability, profitability, and all those things do not assure that current management is going to be kept over when there's a buyout like that. So it certainly wasn't surprising. But now people like Jeff Zucker land on their feet, trust me. I mean, we see people even with companies that have failed miserably 
and companies that have lost millions and millions of dollars, those CEOs get fired, boom, they're right back up the next week. They got three offers of new companies. Kind of funny how that works. Uh, Sometimes I think they're just a figurehead and a recognizable name, but they do seem to land in other positions very quickly. Now, that being said, you're concerned about how does that affect us if we know that CEOs get canned at the drop of a hat? What possibility is there for us to have security if we're down the pecking chain a little bit more than that? Absolutely none. There, you, you can't expect to have security. Now, I say that, you know, kind of tongue in cheek, and I don't want you to think that that's just being negative or paranoid or suspicious. But you're in a much healthier position to realize that you're being hired by a company and getting a paycheck there does not produce security. Now, certainly you want to do a great job and you want to be loyal and dependable and productive and all those things. But, you know, ultimately your security. Now, General Douglas MacArthur said your security comes from the ability to produce. That's the only place we get security. So if you are a graphic designer or you're a production manager or videographer or whatever, your security comes from your ability to produce great work. However, that doesn't mean that you'll stay with the same company over a long period of time. That means that when a company lets you go, you can land on your feet because you are very clear on knowing what your most marketable skills are. That's what gives you security. Security is no longer, you know, starting with a company and working your way up vertically in that company to be CEO. Security may come from knowing clearly what your areas of competence are, even if you move from company to company every 2.2 years, which is the average for anybody in between 18 and 42 years old. So you can still have security in that you know what you have as marketable skills. See, in that sense, I encourage everybody to see themselves as self-employed. Just to recognize you're working for yourself. If you choose to have one customer, meaning that it looks like you have a pretty traditional job, that's okay. But as soon as you put that mentality on, you recognize you're self-employed, you're working for yourself, then it's not a quantum leap to recognize if you need to get a new customer for your services, or if you choose to get four or five customers or eight or 10 for your services, it's not a quantum leap. So don't think your security comes from working for a company. I don't care what the masthead says. If it's IBM, McDonald's, Boeing, or GM, it doesn't matter. We've seen all of those put people on the street in a heartbeat. And incidentally, another thing, Thomas Stanley has written a couple of wonderful books that shed light on this subject. The Millionaire Next Door and The Millionaire Mind. I highly recommend either of those. They're on my reading list. If you go check out my reading list at 48days.com. But in The Millionaire Mind, he talked to people who were decamillionaires, just simply meaning people who are worth at least $10 million or more. said, what is it that you, how do you define risk and security? Well, they define risk and security in exactly the opposite method that the average guy in the street does in America, where they think, man, if I could just get a job, you know, at Google, then I'm going to be secure forever. Well, DECA millionaires, people who end up as millionaires, see having a job at a company like that as extremely risky because you walk in every day knowing one person can put you on the street before the clock strikes noon. Now, what if you have a little 
window washing business. We just talked about that. And you've got 76 customers on your route and you service them every two weeks. What if one of those decides that they really don't like you? You know, they just don't like having you around. I don't care what the reason is. Boom. So you lost one of your 76 customers. Did they just put you out of business? Did they just create, cause you to be unemployment? Not a chance. You have a very tiny percentage of your business that you just lost. Yeah, you need to replace that. But it certainly doesn't put you out of business and thus creates much more security for you than having a traditional job. Now, that's the viewpoint in Thomas Stanley's research described by people who end up extremely wealthy. We can learn from that. Jordan says, Dan, my BHAG, now BHAG is a term, B-H-A-G, from uh, Jim Collins' work, Big Hairy Audacious Goal. But anyway, he says, my BHAG is to be a paid speaker. My passion is helping people set goals, helping people develop a plan for personal success. I'm Les Brown, Jim Rohn, Darren Hardy, Chris Widener, Brian Tracy, audiobook junkie. Les Brown says to make your move before you're ready, and I've done that. I prepared a 45-minute goal-setting presentation, presented this morning in my Sunday school class. Granted, it was a room full of 50 of my peers, ages 25 to 35, but I heard many positive comments afterwards. I could easily expand my presentation to fit three hours, so the ideas are there. I just need the opportunity. So, how do I establish myself as a paid speaker? Where do I look to find speaking opportunities? Where can I work in my presenting skills? I'm not a polished speaker, but I have been a public school teacher for the past eight years, so I'm very comfortable in front of people and can confidently articulate my ideas. Any tips or resources that will help me improve my ability to tell a story? Okay, well, yes, let me give you a couple quick tips. One is go to the wealthy speaker. Uh, Jane Atkinson is her name, the wealthy speaker. She has a package that I think is really superb. I have it here. I think it's $77. I recommend that you get that. It goes through in both printed form and audio, how to become a paid speaker. Number two, check out on48days.net, Kent Julian's Speak It Forward group. Again, this is a no-cost involvement. You can learn a ton from people who are doing exactly what you're talking about. Book yourself with civic organizations. Um, start by, start. I, I would encourage you to start giving three free speeches for every one that you're paid for. It's impossible to break into speaking and expect to be paid from day one. So get out there, be speaking to the Rotary Clubs and other church organizations, universities, colleges, whatever, and you'll, you'll refine your craft, you'll refine being a better speaker, and it'll help you identify your, your unique niche in terms of market and also content. But get out there and do that. You can also check out James Malinchek. Uh, he has, he, he's, he teaches a lot of people about about speaking. He's been very successful speaking on the college tour. His name is James and the last name is M-A-L-I-N-C-H-A-K. Okay. You know what? I've got a couple minutes left. I am going to skip to the question that I alluded to at the top here. And that is about being a pastor. Where is that question? Well, I know it's here. 
Well, where is that question? I, I wanted to get that one in here. Oh, here it is. Okay. Cody says, Dan, I've enjoyed your podcast for a few years now, and I'm currently working through 48 Days to the Work You Love. My question for you regards pastors. You've mentioned you've coached many pastors out of their pastorate and into something that fits their skills, personality, and passions better. Based on what you've said about them, it seems that they have pursued these jobs because they thought full-time ministry was the only way to really serve God. Well, I've been wrestling with what I was born to do. I'm not entirely sure what it is, but ministry has been a recurring theme since I became a Christian at 15 years old. I, too, was convinced that full-time ministry was the only option, but I've since learned how incorrect that is. And some from some quotes and other things that I've said, apparently. Since you have so many pastors coming to you seeking a career change, at what point would you say that someone really is fit to be a pastor? Well, yeah, this is one we ought to spend an entire show on. And I might do that at some point because this is really a, a hot button. Identify real quickly, though, what is a pastor? I mean, I had somebody ask me recently after I spoke, you know, he, he came up and said, are you a pastor? And I said, what is a pastor? And he said, well, somebody who, you know, has spiritual care for others and looks after them as considerate and compassionate and listen, nurtures, you know, exhorts, helps people decide what to do. Anyway, went through a list kind of like that. And I said, you know what? I am a pastor. Now, I don't have a pulpit that I stand behind on Sunday morning, but if we define pastor in that way, it opens a door and helping us see that this idea of a pastor or full-time ministry, wow, I mean, I really cringe when I hear you say that, because if you are a truck driver or a street sweeper, you refer to the Martin Luther King Jr. quote that I used a couple weeks ago, if you are a truck driver or a street sweeper or a window washer, you ought to do that with excellence so that in his quotation, so that the angels sing every time that you do that. If that's what God equipped you to do, then that is your full-time ministry. Don't ever think that you need to be paid by a church to be in full-time ministry. Because if you are a committed Christian, if you are developing Christian virtue and character, then you should be in full-time ministry if you're a brain surgeon or attorney or a plumber. So recognize the application can go in a lot of different directions. So the question only then becomes, are you somebody who is well suited to wear a nice suit, stand behind a pulpit and preach? I mean, if that suits you well and you get a lot of affirmation for that, then by all means, find opportunities to do that. But a lot of people who are called to ministry recognize that's a very challenging position in today's environment. And they really are looking for other opportunities to continue being in full-time ministry. You can do the same. Well, boy, is that a quick and dirty covering of a very tough, challenging question. But I, I commend you on taking the challenge and looking at the opportunities. What is it that fits you? What is the fulfillment and application of ministry in your life? Thanks for being part of our group here. Check out the 48days.net crowd. And as always, enjoy the process of finding or creating work that is meaningful, fulfilling, purposeful, and profitable. Have a great week.